Welcome back to Raised by Wolves, the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, your host, and I don't know about you, but after Aaron Guzikowski told us last week that everything about the season is in plain sight, I have been still stepping through the first two episodes, and now I'm doing the same with the third. Look, I haven't had any flashes of insight as to the future of the characters, but here are the five things I cannot stop thinking about from episode three. Okay, I knew all along that Snake Baby was just a sweet little pumpkin. It just wants snacks and loves. And I love that Mother plucked a bird right out of the sky to test its bloodlust. I just love Snake Baby. I'm unabashed. I understand that's not going to be everybody's position. But I am glad that Mother tested its scales and showed that it was not what got the atheists in the seaside bunker. It's a sweet bebe. I know not everyone is convinced, but I hope they come around because I will be fully traumatized if Snakey gets hurt or attacked in any way this season. (laughs) I can see that you are suffering. But if you help me bring purity to this planet, I promise you... That you will find peace again. The only thing that's going to bring purity to this planet, Marcus, is your death. Let's agree to disagree for now, okay? Alright, Marcus's freaky-deaky strength is scary as hell, and while his intensity as he assures people of his loving family might be super appealing to some and great in concept, again, it's... It's scary, Larry. Uh, Still, I will confess that even my itty-bitty Grinch heart was moved to see him and Paul reunite and both seem so happy about it. All right, what the heck happened in Vril and Decima's past? When Vril told Campion and Paul that her mother had broken her neck before, I, like the boys, had a definite moment of, je m'excuse. Look, every family has some weird and often dark secrets, but it sure seems like an awful lot has gone down with those two, and we don't actually know what happened to the real Vril. On a show that examines parenthood from many angles, I am giving a serious side-eye to Decima as a mother at this point. Hello, Paul. Hello. When we first captured you, you and I had a very long talk. Do you remember? Of course. You think because I'm not a computer I don't remember things? You told me Marcus Drusus murdered your father. That you were angry at him. Wanted him dead is what you said at the time. Yes. Do you still want that? Of course. Paul being questioned by the trust. That whole biz was sinister as hell. None of us trust this situation, right? It definitely feels like that fib that Paul told is going to come back to bite him because I do not believe for a minute that the trust does not know he's lying. I'm very worried. Here's the really big thing. I am into Father's craft project. I love how he gets kind of Shakespearean when he talks to it. I love the weird berries that grow on it, like it's some sort of ultra-advanced alien seed bomb. I love the way it starts slurping up blood fuel. Are you thirsty? I think I could spare a bit more. <clears throat> Fascinating. No wonder Father was willing to throw hands to get more craft supplies. Plus, 
I like that he got a bonus confidence boost out of the whole situation. Come through, new android. I am dying to meet you. All right. (laughs) With all of that in mind, I also want to just get some behind the scenes scoop. And the perfect person has joined me to dish that scoop out. That is Abby X, co-executive producer on Raised by Wolves. First of all, Abby, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. And I know, and I definitely get the vibe from you, right? Being someone in production, you are co-executive producer on this, but that can often be a title that is misleading because it usually becomes the person who handles every weird thing that pops up and needs to be dealt with. So uh, I'm sure there is no such thing as an average day, but what are the kinds of things that you would typically take care of on this show? It's actually a great question because producer can be such a catch-all title. The role that I was hired for is is technically known as a creative producer, even though my title is co-EP. And so that means I'm dealing with all of the creative aspects of the show, both before we're getting to the ground, while we're on the ground, and also through post. So the way that I like to explain it is I sort of have to speak all the languages. I speak writer, I speak actor, I speak director, I speak crew, and about 50% of my day is also playing the role of therapist. So that's a big, big part of my day. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's making sure that Aaron's story is translating on the ground for sure when we're shooting, but then I'm very heavily involved also in the script development and I work very, very closely with the actors on their thoughts on the scripts, both before we're getting to the day on the day and also sometimes afterwards, their thoughts on the episodes after they see them. Well, this all makes sense as to why a number of different people have told me you are the real behind the scenes MVP of this entire show. So that is very kind. And you have worked on both seasons of the show. Season one of this show was really such a surprise to viewers in every episode because it is this completely new thing we have never seen before unfolding, you know, episodically to show us new things every time and getting these mysteries and and all of which had to be, you know, immense on its own. And now coming back for season two, how challenging is it? from a story and production perspective to continue to maintain all of the stuff that's been set up and meet all the new needs of this ongoing story as that world expands. I mean, you have all of those locations, but also just 8,000 threads of thought and logistics that have to be maintained. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I think actually what was cool about season two is because Aaron so masterfully set out the chessboard of what our world is in season one, and had to do a lot of the heavy lifting on what the rules are. By season two, we got to play a lot with like who the chess pieces are and how they're moving and how they're interacting. I really think the audience will be super excited by the fact that we're really getting into some pretty you know, dramatic character dynamics, which I personally love to see. So you have these great new locations, but the audience sort of knows the kind of world they're stepping into. They know it's gonna be super weird. And we definitely keep upping the weirdness. And that's something we were always joking about on set for season one and season two is like, let's all, we're all like hoping and praying that we're on the like right side of weird and not on the like, (laughs) 
Monty Python side of weird. So right. So luckily, Aaron's genius brain, like it's it, he's channeling something super special. So we're in good hands. You are, of course, the behind the scenes maven, as I have been told by everyone. So I want to hear all of your good stories. Um, of course, we have to avoid any spoilers because we're only on episode three. But what was the funniest thing that happened on set this season? I don't know that the funniest thing actually happened while we were shooting, but uh, probably while we were doing the table reads. Uh, it was the only time that all the cast are all together is when we're doing the table reads. Um, and so... A lot of people like to have a lot of fun. The cast is generally all all gets along and are very, very close. I mean, we're all, most of the cast is international. We have some local actors from South Africa, but, um, you know, we're all coming from far away around the world and coming into this, to Cape Town, which is an amazing city. So we all are very, very close. Um, and so people, uh, as one does in a family, like to play pranks on each other. So uh, I know that, I think it was, Travis had taken Matias's phone when he went to the bathroom during a bathroom break and turned the ringer on the phone. And so in the middle of Matias's dialogue, kept calling his phone. So it was going off <laughs> during the table read and Matias was absolutely horrified. Uh, or I think he also stole pages out of Abu's script so that when it was time for <laughs> Abu to read, he was missing some dialogue so you know that was probably that gave everybody a, a chuckle in the table read for sure again this might be tricky since we're still in the beginning of the season but what was the most difficult scene to film logistically yeah every day is challenging i mean essentially unless we're in the habitat filming it's uh, every day is very very hard we've got the effects needs we're considering we've got huge stunts We've got makeup and costume and rigs for prosthetics. So every day, <laughs> it's a fun new adventure. I think probably for episode three, the biggest challenge was the fight sequence between Father and Marcus. Because we had one day to shoot that, and there's a lot of dialogue in the beginning and a lot of characters. <laughs> but then we've also got a habitank, which those are very cumbersome. They're real. They're practical. And so you're, you're moving the habitants that move at like five miles per hour. Um, and then what you see on TV is obviously with the help of VFX. But then we had a whole fight sequence to shoot. We had a blood rig with the fuel blood. We did smoke rig. So for Abu at that, you know, and so all of those prosthetics and special effects take time and the stunts take time. So it, and, and we're shooting it all in an exterior so we're, we're chasing the light constantly. That's always a battle for us, is chasing the light. And Sunu managed to make it work. And what you see, you know, these tiny sequences is like me sitting behind the monitor, like biting my nails off, you know, just praying that we <laughs> make the day. In addition to that, that was like psychologically a little bit of PTSD because that sequence was us going back to Lawrenceford, the wine estate <laughs> that we had all gone to every single day almost on season one. <laughs> So like, there was a whole added element to, psychologically to that day, too. Um, did you have any big surprises during filming that were maybe delightful? I mean, there's so many things that are, that are delightful about this type of storytelling because it's truly a group. It's a group effort. And, you know, the alchemy of how these things come together on the ground, 
You know, there's an idea can come from anywhere, you know, be it the actors, the script supervisors, sometimes a camera operator. You have no idea. And sometimes also, too, just the circumstances force us to be creative. And so that's really the fun times when you see just like happy accidents come together. I mean, I think the opening sequence of the season, (laughs) it was another very large sequence that we were shooting in a forest, which has its own challenges. And we just... Uh, we're losing time. And at the end of the day, the lighting was beautiful for when Decima and Vril are talking to each other. So if you look at the lighting, it's actually very close to nighttime when they're talking. But when you watch it on screen, it's just like this beautiful light. So it's, you know, you never know. That happened on season one, too. We were shooting a scene for the third episode and we ended up having like 15 minutes to do an entire page of dialogue and it's one of my favorite sequences is Marcus and Sue standing upstairs watching Paul in the sim and we truly had 15 minutes to shoot that little bit. Oh, the magic, the magic of production. One of the things that is not production but does seem like magic on screen is that we see all these kids grow up. Um, and you have gotten to work with these kids through, you know, this whole time. What's it like watching them grow up and develop as performers as well, right along with their characters developing and growing? Yeah, it's, I mean, how fortunate we are for Kate Rhodes James, who's our casting director, who has found just the most fabulously talented cast and it's wild to see them grow up I mean first of all it was very funny all of us we all acknowledge that Winta you know he was 13 years old when we started shooting season one he was 15 when he came to set and definitely had a growth spurt so there's that funny line of dialogue from mother in the cargo bay reunion scene you know Winta your voice has changed um so that's like we all know we hope the audience goes with us with the with the timing of our show but you know they have not just grown in stature but grown as actors um winta who plays campion his brothers two older brothers are actors so he came to set this year like really excited to share what he had learned from his brother who's in drama school and really um loved working with we had this wonderful woman this season named kate kate lush who was hired as an intimacy coordinator, but ended up, she has a background as an actor, doing so much work with the actors, just uh, another resource for them of, of technique. And so he really liked working with her. And then Felix, who plays Paul, I mean, we just all call him young Brad Pitt because he's just such a little charmer. He comes on set every day. He's just charming everybody. He's dancing between takes. And he's just like this Phenom. His parents have no idea where he came from. His other siblings are not actors. He just loves acting. And it's just so fun to see him and this natural talent that he has, you know, be able to hold his own with the adult actors. I mean, he's, you know, works I uh, works with, as we know now, from, from 203. He, he'll be with Marcus now moving forward. So to hold his own with Travis and scenes, you know, he's just like this little... Miracle. And then Ivy, I mean, who doesn't love Ivy, who plays Vita? Alex Gabasi, the director, came back from season one to season two. He calls her the million dollar face just because she just you just glows whenever you see her. And that's her personality, too. But she's, you know, she gets to have a couple moments on her own to this season. Her The very last thing she shot was Ivy or Vita on her own. So I'm excited to see, you know, as we move forward, should we? Be so lucky to have future seasons. What's in store for her as she grows up? Uh, I do want to talk about the other child that I seem to be the only one who loves, which is Snake Baby. Um, (laughs) 
I can't explain it. I love Snake Baby. I love Snake Baby. What do you love about Snake Baby? I want to know. Well, I mean, like, there's part of me that is just kind of an animal person. So I'm like, wait, that's your child. Take care of it. Put it in a onesie and hug it. I know that's ridiculous. But but I also just love it as a concept. Like, we haven't ever really, as viewers, of anything that I can think of, had, like, a flying serpent snake creature with a giant scolex mouth that you're trying to figure out really what its nature is and maybe it's not scary and it is the product of a family sort of and what is that i mean that's just a fascinating element of plot absolutely and of course everyone as episode three starts out is on the hunt for this poor thing um but i know you had told me before we talked that like just filming for that is its own set of challenges and weirdness. I imagine having a pivotal character that is not anyone you can talk to or anything you can physically manipulate on set has its own set of rules. How do you guys manage Snake Baby? Yeah, Snake Baby is nothing except a tennis ball (laughs) and (laughs) a wonderful stunt performer named Lee Shane, who's in this giant... Uh, cardboard snakehead that uh, Yako in our prosthetics department built for us so the actors can have something to interact with. And, you know, it's funny. I see people online, you know, uh, wonder like, oh, the show took such a crazy turn at the end. But if you look back, Aaron very much set up the serpents in the show. And there's a ton of biblical allegory here. And, you know, but what, but I think what we try to strive for and I really work with the actors and on the scripts on is making sure that the emotions are relatable, right? Because we can have this big, crazy world, but if the audience isn't relating to the characters and the emotions those characters are feeling, then I don't think they're going to stay with the show. And so in working with Amanda and Aaron and on the scripts, it's really how to bring out this mother and child relationship because it's mother's child, right? And so she's got this almost obsessive, addictive need to care for this child, even though everybody else is telling her, you know, it's a danger, it's a monster. So, you know, how do you uh, uh, make that relatable in terms of like normal character dynamics or family dynamics? And that's what we're constantly trying to do is just like bring it back to the psychology that's really grounded. This is another aspect of kind of a growing family that I am already so deeply fascinated by. Father gets his own little project in creating life, sort of, or reanimating life. Um, At what point did you find out that Father was going to get to rebuild another ancient android? And what was your reaction? And what is that like on set to know, like, there are more than two androids in town now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I knew from when Eric came up with season two. So we, we knew that right away. That was one of the big features of season two. But I can tell you, nobody was more excited by father building an android than Abu, who plays father. (laughs) So he found out, uh, because Aaron, prior to the season in 2020, we did meetings with all of the actors, and Aaron pitched their specific storyline to them, and only their storyline. And so when Abu found out that he was going to have his own you know, whatever grandmother is, his project, I think he was, I've never seen Abu happier. So that was really, (laughs) (laughs) that was really sweet because, you know, father kind of got a bad rap, got a bum deal. Season one, mother cheated on him. So 
for him to be able to have sort of his own thing for season two, you know, I think everybody will be sort of rooting for father. But then also, you know, we all root for this family. So we want to make sure, you know, you know, we're all rooting for this family to stay intact. And Amanda was so funny when uh, Selena got hired. She was just uh, she couldn't wait to find out who grandmother was because she was like, I hate her already. (laughs) <laughs> I don't care who it is. I hate her. But, you know, she loves Selena. And the, it's just these two powerful women, you know, who are playing these powerful roles. And it's just super cool to see on screen. I also think it's it's one of those things that's fascinating. And as you talk about it, it becomes clearer and clearer, right? This can be as strange a world as it is. But really, at the end of the day, like, it is about all of the things we grapple with in our days. Like, this is a family that has shifting dynamics, and sometimes people get along, and sometimes they do not, and sometimes they don't agree on just really base ideological issues. <laughs> and and yet, uh, in framing it in this way with completely, literally off-of-this-planet characters and events, we get to examine those dynamics in a a way that's distanced enough from ourselves that we can probably view it a little more objectively. So yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a family drama with all its dysfunctions and quirks. And who doesn't have dysfunctions and quirks in their own family? So I think, you know, yeah, people are relating to what they see in their own families, perhaps in this family that just happens to be led by two androids on another planet. (laughs) Now I want to see like a gag reel that's done like a sitcom because (laughs) we do. We have a lot of moments that are gag reel. Definitely. I'm I'm ready. And for you, I mean, I know you put in ridiculous hours on this. And so uh, seeing all of those things finally come together, I imagine, is quite fulfilling. So what about these first few episodes in season two has been the most exciting for you to see finally come to fruition? I think it's been so cool just to see that we did reestablish this new world of the tropical zone and nailed it. Well, the audience will tell us if we nailed it. But, you know, in COVID times and, you know, with all of our, you know, wonderful artists from Ridley and Aaron and like spread out around the globe and we were able to make it work. And that's a true credit to the artisans that we have in our crew. Abby, you are such a delight. I would keep you all day and make you talk and talk and talk. But I know you have a life outside of this interview. Thank you, though, so much for spending this time with us and for getting this production in front of our eyes. Oh, thank you for having me. I love talking about this show. I just feel very lucky to be a part of it. Ah, my deepest thanks to Abby for hanging out with me. She is so fun and has all of the goods. I feel like I would love to get some drinks and chat with her for a long time and find out every single behind-the-scenes secret. Join me next time around because we are going to have Kate Karen, the costume designer for Raised by Wolves, and you know I'm going to ask her absolutely everything about those android costumes. Raised by Wolves, the podcast is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio. It's hosted and written by me, Holly Fry. The podcast is produced and edited by Jeff Heimbuck and executive produced by Ethan Fixell, with additional assistance from James Foster. If you haven't already subscribed, rated, or reviewed Raised by Wolves, the podcast, please do so on the iHeartRadio app, HBO Max, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to watch the series itself on HBO Max with new episodes. Episodes available to stream on Thursdays. 